Scotiabank's Contact Photography Festival 2021 is now on view with online virtual programming and art projects at public spaces across the City of Toronto. Each year, the citywide event enlivens Greater Toronto with photo-based exhibitions and outdoor installations by Canadian and international artists. The 25th anniversary edition is offering new ways to engage with the festival on its redesigned website with virtual exhibitions, conversations, workshops, and more. Several exhibitions can be seen outdoors, in storefront windows, or virtually, while other venues plan to safely welcome visitors by appointment. This year's festival extends beyond the customary month-long event, rolling out programming throughout the year in response to fluctuating public health guidelines. Details are now available on Contact's website, which is scotiabankcontactphoto.com. Welcome to Momus the Podcast. We are your hosts, Sky Gooden. And Lauren Wetmore. What is the weather like where you are, Sky? It's a blousy summer's day. Mm. And uh, today's the first day we're being released from curfew in Montreal in five months. So <gasps> I believe this weekend will be bananas. Oof, yeah, everybody's going to be rubbing up on each other. That sounds exciting. <laughs> How about um, Luxembourg? Well, it's rainy and it's cold, and I have not, I have not seen even the first vaccine, so I will not be doing oh. any rubbing up against. <laughs> <laughs> but this interview with Tourmaline and Muna Meyer is really helping me imagine uh, that summer might eventually get here. Mm-hmm. This is an unusual episode for us, and um, a really exciting collaboration that we're engaging with. Can you talk to us a bit about how this came to be? Yeah. So this interview focuses on a profile that the writer and producer Muna Meyer wrote about the artist and filmmaker Tourmaline. Uh, It was for the October 2020 issue of Freeze magazine. And um, usually, you know, we speak to a writer, but this time I wanted to talk to both the writer and the subject of the writing. Because the thing that I like the most about this profile is that it is so full of a mutuality between Mm -hmm. the writer and the subject. Mm -hmm. And it's almost like when when you're reading a really good book or or you're watching a really good movie and you are loving the space that you're in, I like wanted to continue to be in that space with them. Mm -hmm. So, Mm -hmm. So this interview, asking them both to be in it was a little bit like kind of continuing that basking of being in the space of the space of these two together that was created. Ooh, that's well said. I, I was just rereading it this morning and feeling that same, that same vibe that that's so rare I find in a profile that, yeah. that you're, you're stepping into a relationship, not, exactly. not just spectating. So I take it this profile looks at some of Tourmaline's most recent film work. Yeah, so we get some really beautiful insights of two short 16 millimeter films that Tourmaline released in 2019. Um, And both of them focus really lovingly on reimagining Mary Jones, who's a black trans sex worker who was alive in New York City in the early to middle 1800s. One of these works was recently acquired by the Museum of Modern Art in New York, uh, which to me sort of it felt like an important and very contemporary arrival in some way. But then Nona's article so perfectly contextualizes it um, in 
and I'll quote here, Tourmaline's dreamlike renderings of queer and trans ancestors on film reach back in time in order to divine the future, disrupting linear notions of history in what Saida Hartman calls the violence of the archive. In Tourmaline's films, past, present, and future are arbitrary distinctions that give way to a simple truth. We were always here and always will be. Mm. That moment sticks out for me in, in the piece too, because amidst so much like bucolic writing almost, there's a real sensuousness and descriptive electricity to the writing. Mm-hmm. Like there's one moment in particular, a sea punk dream mm. is is Muna's description of Tourmaline as as she's coming um, to their first meeting, I think, or at mm. least the first in that piece, a sea punk dream. But then for a moment later, that line that you've just buttoned this with, what was the line again? We've always been here. We always will be. We were always here and always will be. It just arrives. It just lands, right? Yeah. There's this just sort of stripping away and a foundational tile that's given to you there. And I, I love a writer who can fluctuate between those two modalities. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So we don't have, uh, as we have through the season, um, someone reading a piece to begin this discussion. Can can you tell us a bit more about how this is set up? Yeah. So the problem is, is that because I'm interviewing both of them, we didn't have enough time in the episode to include a full reading of the text. So mm-hmm. our solution was to ask both Muna and Tarmeline to choose a short passage that they felt was sort of the crux of the article. Um which we will cut to soon, but I was wondering if maybe I can read the first little bit of the article, which is actually my favorite part, and that can Mm. maybe warm us up for the main attraction. Yes, please. So this is Lauren, then Muna Meyer, then Tourmaline, reading from Muna Meyer's profile of Tourmaline, published in the October 2020 issue of Freeze. The late, legendary drag queen and activist, Marsha P. Johnson, would often walk to the end of the piers on the west side of Manhattan, strip naked, and throw all of her clothes into the Hudson River as an offering to Neptune, god of the sea. She was infamous for strolling down Christopher Street naked after one of these religious prostrations. In many ways, Johnson was sainted while she was still alive. Her people, the homeless queer youth of Christopher Street, saw her as divine. There was nothing that she would not give to the needy, the shirt off her back, the shoes on her feet, her last dollar. She was known for wearing flower crowns. Johnson's devotional practice is thoroughly documented. She spent much of her brief and joyously revolutionary time on earth channeling a higher power. When I think of Johnson, whose legacy has enjoyed a recent renaissance, I think to my friend, the experimental filmmaker, archivist, community organizer, and spiritualist, Tourmaline. If it were not for Tourmaline, I would not know who Johnson was. Odds are you might not either. For many young people, Tourmaline's digitized archival work, much of which lives on Tumblr, has been their first point of contact. It was through Tourmaline's blog that I learned Johnson was one of the first handful of patrons to fight back when the police raided the Stonewall Inn on the fateful June evening in 1969. 
The following year, Johnson and her best friend, the Puerto Rican drag queen Sylvia Rivera, would go on to found Street Transvestite Action Revolutionaries, a radical activist collective that provided housing and resources to homeless queer youth and sex workers in Lower Manhattan. The articles, images, interviews, and oral histories that Tourmaline has lovingly and painstakingly gathered in her now inactive blog, The Spirit Was, are a rare window into the lives of the freedom fighters who came before us. And now, here's Muna. Mary of ill fame seeks to make legible the historical links between slavery, prisons, labor, and land. The idyllic backdrop of Seneca Village is shown as being under constant threat by white supremacists hungry for property upon which to construct their own pastoral fantasy. Tourmaline tells me that the idea for Mary of ill fame came to her while she was tripping on mushrooms alone in Central Park communing with the land. She often finds herself catching a vibe, listening to deep feelings and following intuitions she doesn't quite yet understand. In other words, divining. This spiritual work is depicted in both films through Jones's practice of scrying, looking at reflective objects in low light, something Tourmaline does regularly. Many of Tourmaline's films, like Salacia and Mary of Ill Fame, are portraits of queer and trans ancestors that she composes from scant historical information, a process not unlike scrying. So much of my art practice is spiritual practice, meaning it's ancestral stewardship a way to reconnect to my elders and my own spirituality, she tells me. In both films, the performative utterances peppered throughout are actually spells taken from Virginia Hamilton's 1985 collection of Black folktales, The People Could Fly. Hamilton often described her own writing in interviews as a triad of the known, the remembered, and the imagined. And the opening invocation of Salacia, They Say the People Could Fly, is a nod to the book's title. I was raised on Hamilton's book, and knowing that Black people have access to magic, that we are magic, Tourmaline says. Mm, thank you. D- can you tell me about why you chose that part? Um, sure. I mean, I actually hadn't planned it, so I was a little bit on the spot. But um, <laughs> I think that, you know, you, you asked me to sort of point to um, what I think is important about this profile. and and sort of what's important about Tourmaline's work. Like if I could sum it up in sort of one kernel of an idea, I think it would be um, sort of um, this idea of like divining or of, of mm-hmm. like visioning basically. Um, and, you know, I guess sort of recognizing that a lot of um, Tourmaline's work is, it's very spiritual. Um, that spirituality carries all, all of her work. And I think that, um, it's ground, it's grounded in like, in, um, sort of a a tradition of like black spirituality and, and sort of black radical visioning, um, you know, be it utopia or or dystopia, um, black prophecy that that's, that's really important. That's such a nice place to start. Thank you. Tourmaline, did you have a section that you, that you uh, wanted to share with us or read to us? I met Tourmaline on a sticky July afternoon in Brooklyn by the edge of the algae-saturated pond adjacent to the boathouse in Prospect Park. The heat appears to shimmer and break above the asphalt on the path nearby. A pair of dragonflies hover above a lily pad next to me. I wonder if they're fucking. 
Dabbing the condensation from my iced coffee on my brow, I fiddle with my phone as I wait. Mm, that was also one of my favorite favorite parts too, that section of the dragonflies and their kind of separate world. Yeah, I love this part because one, Moon is just such a brilliant writer, person, like polymath. And <laughs> so when I found out that Muna was going to write about me, it was just it was such an incredible honor. You know, it's like always a huge deal to be written about, especially by someone whose work and life you really admire and yeah. find such resonance with. I specifically chose this part because to me it speaks to the importance of like that kind of like hotter than July, Stevie Wonder, black pleasure, replenishment, rejuvenation, hanging out, like the little kiki, the like being able to be with each other, the like finding pleasure in the weight and in the like um, the everyday, you know, which I think that Moon is writing just so um, holds and reflects back as powerful and important and something to pay attention to. Like, hey, hey, like you think that uh, this big thing is the, the main event, but actually like the dragonflies and actually the algae pond and actually like just hanging out and looking at my phone and actually just like us being like sweaty bodies in the sun. So that's, that's to me, it speaks um, volumes about, you know, the power of, of Muna and what Muna brings when they're writing. What struck me right away, uh, just to maybe build on what you're saying, is that Muna, you introduced Tourmaline first as my friend and then the experimental filmmaker, archivist, community organizer, and spiritualist. So... I think in the way that you've already started this conversation in the text, there is something very important here about centering the relationship between an artist and the person who's writing about them. Um, but also just about the day to day of human interaction. Um, and maybe I was, I was hoping that you could both tell me a little bit more about your relationship to each other before this piece was published and how you came together towards it. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, that's a great question. Um, I think <laughs> that as a writer, a lot of the times, um, you know, there's this sort of myth of objectivity, right. Of like, mm-hmm. um, needing to maintain, I guess, a distance from your subject. Um, yeah. so when the editor at freeze approached me about profiling tourmaline, um, which did feel kind of out of the blue. He like read a piece of mine I read like I wrote a while ago and reached out and thought, you know, I really like your voice. I think, you know, you'd be a good fit for this piece. Are you interested? And I'm like, yes, but also this is my friend, you know, I know her. And so I have, I have a more, um, like, you know, a more weighted sort of, um, interaction like with her work I guess um and you know kind of like disclose that up front Tourmaline and I have been like friends for a few years now yeah we've kind of been in each other's orbit for a while um you know queer community is very very small (laughs) um 
even in New York City. Um, but yeah, I think that I came to the piece wanting to take um, care, you know, take care with my friend's work that means so much to me personally, like on a spiritual level um, as well. So it was a delight to write. Um, it was very consuming in yeah. the time that, that I was writing it. Um, because yeah, I, I wanted to do right by, by my friend. Yeah. I mean, I wonder like as art critics or, or people who, you know, who, who write criticism, um, do you think that objectivity is a thing in art criticism? Do you think that you need to maintain a distance from an artist that you're writing about or, or no? Yeah, I do, I do. I think objectivity is a myth. And I'm also not interested in it at all. I mean, what I'm interested in is exactly what you two did with this piece is presenting exactly what is happening in those kind of crevices between professional and personal relationships, because I think those crevices are undeniable and actually much more interesting. <laughs> They're very alive. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Tourmaline, I'm interested because... I find kind of the the most stressful part about writing about art to be that moment when I share what I've written about an artist with that artist. But I, I wonder for you, what is the feeling of receiving a text that, yeah, that, that somebody has constructed about you? I think it's two simultaneous things. One is like, I'm a shy ass cancer, so I just want to run and hide, you know? (laughs) (laughs) And I'm like, nobody look at me, least of all people I really, really love and care about. (laughs) But, you know, the bigger part of me is just so deeply appreciative, you know, and um, I feel really honored. Have you ever had an experience where somebody wrote about your work and you really disagreed with what they said? Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. What was that like? You know, I think that, what was that like? There was a few years ago, some people, I mean, around some, like a film that I made called Happy Birthday Marsha, some people wrote, and, um, Mm -hmm before the film came out about kind of just the unfolding of the process. And I, it was like up on Jezebel or whatever. And I was like, Oh, this is not how I would write about anyone's work. And I think it, you know, going back to being like a shy cancer who it's like my cancerian work I seek to do in public. So the works of care of lineage holding of like, remembering who we really are and what we deserve and like being the beneficiary of all that came before. I seek to do that in a really public way. And so people's responses to it will will play out in public. And sometimes um, they'll be in ways that I just really um, disagree with, but it's helpful to remember that, like, you know, say that particular writer, like their agreement wasn't actually what I was ever looking for in the first place around that project. It was to help people connect to in an even greater way, the spirit of Marsha B. Johnson, you know, or, and Sylvia Rivera. And so in, in some ways, it's like, thank you very much 
for reminding me that I can't look to that person in order to have the feeling of what is my calling. My calling is to share in like what feels deeply spiritual, the lineages of black, queer, and trans, disabled, low-income people in a way that feels, you know, increasingly playful and pleasurable and fun and lighthearted. Um, so it was like a, it was a wake up call reminder. Muna, when you were, st- when you were starting to write this text, did you, um, it's, I'm really interested in your voice. Tourmaline brought it up too. My next question was going to be about these dragonflies because the way you've structured the profile is actually, it, it's actually quite a, um, like a classical classical profile structure, the hook and the weaving of the interviews and the bio and the greater contextual history. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really masterfully woven, but then there are, yeah, these moments where your voice pops in, in a very um, kind of, I want to say explicit, but just, just very clear manner. And that dragonfly moment is, uh, is a moment like that. And I wonder do you read work on an artist or in in this instance, did you read writing about Tourmaline's work before you started writing or, or do you, do you exercise certain kind of, um, I don't know, practices before you write about something in order to preserve your voice? I will say that um, the historical part of it, I did, I, I wanted to know a little bit more about. So Mary Jones, for example, mm-hmm. um, there wasn't that much out there, but there was a, a critic or a scholar. I want to say their last name is Nyong'o, actually, like Lupita. Um, mm. But they they had written both on Tourmaline and I think written something about Mary Jones. And so I did end up reading them um, for a little bit of context. But for me, I, I read, you know, I sort of, you know, I worked in the magazine world for a while. I read a lot of profiles and I think that a lot of profiles are sort of like bloodless and and sort of sanitized now and very like, just not very fun. Um, And (laughs) it kind of like takes all the pleasure out out of reading it. Um, So, you know, I, I just, I wanted to have fun with it a little bit, I think. Mm -hmm. Um, so the dragonflies just like reminded me of tourmaline. Um, they were sort of Mm. otherworldly (laughs) in a way, um, very playful. They were sort of dive bombing each other. Um, I couldn't, they were like doing this thing where they were kind of like spiraling down around each other. Um, and I I couldn't tell what was going on, but it looked like they were mating. (laughs) Um, I, either that or killing each other. Um, (laughs) It's often hard to tell the difference. Yeah, 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 exactly. (laughs) (laughs) I I also wanted to ask you, Muna, have you ever had an experience where you um, where you wrote about a subject that was was not happy with the result? Um, I I wrote a profile of a musician once where we just like misunderstood each other where I like misidentified their gender and they mm. were talking about their gender expansiveness and and the fact that they were non-conforming and I think that I understood it as they were they were non-binary but mm. they never said that so they came back and um corrected me but they weren't upset they were very gracious about it mm. um and I think that 
that's probably the only time that I've felt regret. Um, Mm -hmm. But I think that I I try to do a good job. I haven't written that many. And also the, the artists that I tend to profile are, have a small enough audience that like the stakes are sort of high for me as a writer because I want to do right by them and sort of get them exposure that, that is sort of, um, I guess like true to them and their work. Mm -hmm. Um, but there's not like, I don't run into a lot of the same issues when someone has a ton of handlers and people. Right. Um, and there's, you know, there's different, it's different sort of stakes. So, you know, that, that often means like artists in my community that are Mm -hmm. accessible to me. Um, I profiled Ka, who's like a longstanding, like Brooklyn Brownsville rapper slash fire captain for Bader. Um, and that, that's like an example of something like this, where it's like, this is sort of just like, I'm passionate about this artist in my community and I have a chance to do this. Um, and I want to do a good job at it because, you know, people should know about this. It enriches us all. Yes. I wonder, Tourmaline, just thinking about the construction, the construction of this text, I want to sort of shift slightly and ask you a similar sort of question in the capacity of uh, your being an editor for the anthology Trapdoor, Transcultural Production and the Politics of Visibility. Um, can you tell me a little bit about sort of the goals and challenges of constructing a book like that and, and whether or not you had a similar sort of feeling that, that Muna was just describing in terms of uh, representing your community? So with Trapdoor, that was a book that really came at a particular moment of my life. I had been doing so much kind of organizing work um, and activism work in a really local grassroots level around issues of like healthcare and welfare and housing and um, freedom from police and prison violence. So, you know, another way of saying that would be like ease of moving around and being able to live your life. Um, and so, at that time, I was also really pivoting towards being more um, expressive and taking up more space and living more of my life in a kind of art world context. And so I wanted to create a book that um, one of the most powerful parts of like working at you know, um, grassroots organizations was like making art together. And so I wanted to make a book that was really about showcasing the the power and the beauty of um, my community while also kind of pushing back against the the notion of like, um, you know, being instrumentalized by like a corporation or something uh, equals like progress. And what, what, you know, the aim was to say, like, we are artists, we're so, um, whether it's like defying, uh, you know, the very real anti-cross-dressing laws that govern so many people's um, capacity to ex- fully express themselves and, uh, uh, on the street and in public in, you know, New York uh, around the Stonewall riots and in prisons and jails still today and detention centers, um, or whether it's like, 
drawing or painting or making films. Um, we have just like such a long history of, of being, of, of creating. Um, and at that time when the book came out, there was just like these larger platforms of visibility. And it was, you know, important for me to say, like, it, it's so meaningful and important to shine. And also, like, who's the audience for our shining? Do Are we getting paid our resources from, like, a platform of, like, shining on, on a Netflix or Amazon, like, bring uh, resources back to our community? And um, does it create ease for access to, like, basic things like getting welfare, um, you know, or getting housing or getting out of prison or having money in your commissary or, you know, funding bail funds. It's not a binary, but like uh, visibility doesn't necessarily equate, uh, you know, just like more support for basic survival needs if we're not at the table. Um, And so that book really kind of came out of that series of conversations. Um, And, you know, I think at every moment of creating after I make the thing, whether it's um, a book or a film or essay or blog post or uh, a really meaningful conversation or, uh, you know, building on a relationship, I grow from it and I don't like have the same exact um, vantage point or place of understanding you know like we're all bigger after we have the conversation right like we grow we grow through doing is what I believe and so I think if I was gonna write or edit a book like that today it would be a little different and maybe um you know because it would be like a beneficiary of the conversations that came before it would be even more nuanced you know and um in such a way that maybe it was, it would just be about the fun things that we want to enjoy and revel in um, and put the spotlight on, on that. I'm really struck by you saying that visibility does not equal being at the table. Um, or That's a paraphrase of what you were saying, but I'm wondering about how that relates to this instance of being profiled in freeze. Um, I was thinking about an interview that Sky, my co-host, did with Rihanna Jade Parker, who's an art critic, um, who just recently, not recently, but I think probably in the past year or so, has become a contributing editor at Freeze. And she was saying that people were sort of saying like, oh, you're at the table now, you have this power. And she was sort of saying like, well, whatever, I'm still living a poor black woman's life. So if you think that this is somehow changing my life, then you're sorely mistaken. Um, and I wonder, yeah, I wonder what it what it means in terms of uh, being on the side of, of having your work profiled by, a, you know, an established an established uh, publication. Not that this is the first time for you, but if you could just tell me your thoughts on that. I mean, honestly, my thoughts are just deep appreciation. Mm. Um, You know, I think that, I think a few different things. One, I'm just, you know, like I was saying before, the fact that Muna wanted to write about me, I can't overstate how seen that makes me feel. Period exclamation point you know (laughs) and then like um new page from a whole different journal entry it's like um 
I think it's good to have these conversations about like visibility uh, in like whether it's in the art world or, you know, a lot of what Trapdoor was in response to was like, okay, yes, like uh, we got like Laverne Cox on the cover of Time and we have like, um, you know, Transparent on Amazon. It's like even saying these things out loud feels like, uh, you know, like we're in a, it's like flashback six, six or seven years ago, right? And so I think what I was and many people in my community were saying this is exactly what you brought up. It's like being um, the, on the face of something that isn't uh, like resourcing necessarily, um, you know, or putting attention back on like a, a community that has every year, um, every year in the past, like, you know, eight years, uh, the National Coalition of Anti-Violence Projects has documented like how um, more and more every year, black trans women are are murdered. And so, you know, this was a few years ago into that, um, that like um, trend. And uh, I don't know, I think we were like, some of us were just like really like, like wanting to tease apart the notion that like um, Netflix and Amazon, uh, you know, like, putting on like trans people is different than directing energy onto issues that are fundamental to us being able to stay alive. That being said, it's like not a binary. So art and resourcing being able to stay alive aren't necessarily like in conflict with each other. So like enjoying art and fighting and supporting organizing to keep each other alive can go really hand in hand. Like, the more uh, beautiful and powerful my community feels, the more access we have to being really into solutions and uh, new ideas and creativity to shift a problem um, and generate like really compelling solutions. So it's not to say like, stop, you know, um, stop the press, literally, like don't print anymore time magazines or don't watch any more Netflix. It's, it's to say like, actually let's have these as like um, not conflated or collapsed onto each other conversations. Yeah. Could I just speak to that for a second? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I just wanted to point out that um, again, I, I am also like very deeply appreciative to get to, um, to do this work for freeze, you know, um, to be given like the intellectual sort of like room to do that. And also it paid pretty well. So that was, that was great. But, um, I was also commissioned, um, a month after the Brooklyn liberation March, Hmm. um, for black trans power. Hmm. And I don't think that that, those two things are unrelated. I think that, um, this thing can happen with editors who are sort of in these positions to commission and who maybe do wield like a little bit more institutional power where like there is a commitment at, at the, on the one hand, but they're also, it feels like less of a commitment when it comes in and out sort of based on what's going on at the time. So I, I think that I personally find that very frustrating. Like I wish I would have been commissioned to do this before that, um, but I think it also goes to show that um, even in these sort of like 
hallowed spaces, the reason this article exists, in my mind anyway, like a sort of complex, like one of those Rube Goldberg machines, but then like at the (laughs) end of it, it's that people set cars on fire, you know, like people burn down police precincts. And the ripple effect of that is is really powerful, actually. Um, So thank you to everyone who did that. Yeah. I was thinking about how many, it's important how many ancestors are named in this text. And you also talk about MoMA's acquisition um, as a victory to have the stories of our ancestors not only unearthed, but enshrined. And I wonder if there's there's a similar kind of feeling of victory around the publication of this text. And, and you both as activists, do you feel that this text was maybe the both of you coming together and do you see it as part of your activism? Um, I personally like want to be clear that I, d- I don't think that I'm an activist. I think that I'm a writer that is in community and that has politics. Um, but I don't really, I don't really do much anymore. Like I used to organize, I used to like go out and be on the streets, but I don't really do that as much. Mm-hmm. So, um, I just want to be like very clear about that because I know a lot of people do that work and you know, it's very, it's very important. Organizing is very important. Um, do I see it as activism? I guess activism is a little different than organizing. Um, I don't think so necessarily. Like I think that, um, for me, when, when I wrote that, what I was thinking was it feels really good to see stories that were not treated with any care, any love, like sort of subjected to the violence of the archive, the violence of Western history. Um, and like to see Tourmaline very lovingly um, excavate these stories and and put them on display for us, that feels like a victory. Like when I say like enshrining, I think that um, there is absolutely a value to the money aspect of it, like the investment in, in her as an artist. And that, that feels good. Like that feels good to see an artist that I love, a dear friend whose work I respect, who's grounded me, right. And kept me going in a lot of ways, um, sort of fed, I guess, like that's (laughs) the enshrining was tourmaline. I think that, um, the, the, the institutional piece of it is I just like, I love to see, the artists that I love get fed and, and to be able to have like the space to, um, to create and to do, to like make the work that they want to make. Um, especially like, you know, artists of color, um, trans gender, queer artists, um, queer artists, like women artists, all of it. Support is not, it's not handed out evenly to everyone. And it it feels like a victory to have, um, to have seen the support sort of be poured into these stories that are themselves feel like they've been sort of like, they're gems that have kind of been like unearthed um, from, from the violence of the historical archive. One of the things that has come up again and again in the interviews we've been doing this season is uh, how painful it is to write. Um, And I know that many artists can also find uh, making work very difficult or they think about it in different, in similar ways in terms of kind of like psychic and emotional hardship. But I was inspired by how Muna wrote that for as much as tourmaline your practice is about abolition. It's also, and I want to quote here, deeply concerned with pleasure, glamour, lushness, and ease. Um, 
And I want to know, are these the kinds of things that can also be brought into the practice of writing and making art and how I, I really need, I need you to teach us. <laughs> I, I found pleasure in this because I found pleasure in thinking about it. And I think that there is, um, there is something to be said for thinking really hard about something, um, <laughs> And going for a walk and thinking about it some more and, you know, going about your day and then coming back to, to what you wanted to land on, like, like <laughs> sitting on that egg and then that egg hatching just feels really good sometimes. Um, um, but I think, yeah, honestly, a lot of it is torturous too. Like you have to, I, 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 with a profile too, like with a piece of, of this length, like I always end up overwriting. Mm. Um, and it's like, okay, you can actually only turn in like 2,500 words made like 500 words, like wiggle room, um, yeah. like a 2000 word profile, like tops. Right. Yeah. And, and when I finished it initially, I think it was like 6,000 words or something. Um, <laughs> So I think that it can release be hard. the tapes, Muna. <laughs> um, listen, yeah, um, there really was a lot that didn't make it into the final piece, um, and I think that it can be like this is why it's so important to be edited because if you're not edited well, it gets torturous. It's not. Hmm. It's just I think <laughs> I think editors really rescue you sometimes by um, sort of surveying this like huge thing that you've made and and pointing out very gently oh okay like maybe there's a through line here like can you follow this to its conclusion yeah how, how might that shape the like the rest of this piece um yeah so I had a really good editor that helped I've been thinking more and more to that point about how it's also important for a writer to learn how to be edited um you know I used to find it very painful I was very precious about everything that I wrote and I've recently been working on a text with an editor who's been quite hard and just kind of, I decided to give myself over to it mm -hmm. and realize that you're absolutely right. That is, it is so important and can take away so much of that heavy lifting. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, if you're, if you're editing me, I want you to be a better writer than me. Um, <laughs> yeah. And uh, yeah, I mean, I think that I kind of sort of cut my teeth as a writer in this really intense, like 2010s moment that was mm. where, you know, blogging was just like, everything was a blog and you had to churn out like four blogs a day. And um, people were just like commissioning on this, like really intense, quick sort of news cycle, like turnaround. And so when you're being edited in that context and like that's kind of how I got on this scene or first started making money, right? Not very mm -hmm. glamorous, but when you're being edited in that sense, it's very brutal. Yeah. <laughs> um, and you can't be precious about it because there's a time constraint. So mm -hmm. I feel like I was kind of just like thrown into the lava pit very early in my writing career in that sense. Um, and I've never been precious about it. Uh, I think that, you know, writing is always deeply embarrassing. Um, 
It's just, yeah, like putting your voice out there. It's literally, it does, reading something you wrote and having it out in the world, to me, does feel sometimes like when you hear a recording of your own voice, which, you know, I'm going to yes. <laughs> at the end of this. Um, and you're like, who's that? You know, yeah. like, what's that? And and also, honestly, I, I feel like I sometimes black out the entire writing process. Like, I don't, I don't even know how we got here, but we did. Um, and we're just going to, like, go with it. <laughs> Termaline, is there any any of that that resonates with, with your thinking about your own practice? Absolutely, all of it. Um, you know, I think that especially right now, the part that I'm thinking about is, like, not being um, so precious mm-hmm. with what I'm creating or, like – I think before I have Venus in Virgo, so I'm so specific about what goes where and the lens and the music and when it comes in and when it fades out and all that. But now I'm starting to find pleasure in the kind of co-creative collaborative nature of what film is really supposed to be. And, you know, like, yes, it's great that I have a vision, but when you trust other people's capacity and ability and brilliance to take it to a level that maybe you wouldn't have never even conceived, then you really make a movie magic in my opinion. And so that's kind of a lesson in like not being so precious for me or like not thinking that just because my ideas are the ones that have been thought the longest about it, they're necessarily the, the best for the situation. Yeah, I was talking to an artist who was trained as a as a painter, like very classically and worked for years and years as a painter and then suddenly moved into video. And everybody was very kind of suspicious or didn't know why that had happened and she was like I just got too lonely. Like I yeah. had to start I had to start being with people and yeah. because I'm making work all the time. Yeah. That working has to be part of being with people too. Exactly. Um, I will also say that part of the pleasure uh, of writing for me is that this kind of writing, like art writing, it's not my j- day job. Like my day job mm-hmm. is is I work on a I work on a comedy show, so I'm yeah. doing like poo poo pee pee like fart, yeah. fart jokes all day, right? <laughs> yeah, so then there is like actually a deep pleasure in like coming home and activating that part of my brain. Um, yes. And and yes. and it's not like I can do it on my terms. Um, right. It's it's hard when it's how you're paying your bills. Like if that's your your right. livelihood in that sense. Like I think that some of the pleasure is taken out of it um, for sure. Tourmaline, was there anything you wanted to add, or something that you kind of thought we would talk about it, but we didn't? This is great. I talked. We talked about more than I imagined. Yeah. <laughs> Okay. Well, yeah, I don't don't want to take up any more of your time, but maybe what we can do is um, close our our, uh, audacities together just to make sure we preserve the recording. So it's it's the yellow square that you would press to stop it. Sorry if this is kind of paternalistic. I just want to make sure we don't lose it. I'm on a high-key bimbo summer, so this is really (laughs) great for me. (laughs) High-key bimbo summer. I wish I was there with you.
Moments the Podcast is edited by Jacob Irish with assistant production from Mitra Shiram. The season's music is arranged by Ulysses Castellanos. We would like to thank Muna Meyer and Tourmaline for valued contribution to this season. And a special thanks to all of those of you who are supporting the podcast. You can find us at patreon.com slash momusart or contact me directly about making a one-time contribution, skygooden at momus.ca. Your support makes a crucial difference. This has been episode 32 of Momus the Podcast. <laughs>